Good morning, I'm Kyle Bryant, and our scripture reading for today is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, I pray that your spirit would come in power, convicting power. Lord, may we see Christ more clearly. May we see who we are more clearly than ever before. May we see a new identity he has given us. May we see who we are in relation to Jesus and have our lives changed by it. Uh, Lord, may we see the Son and his value and gladly put all else aside in order to embrace him as the treasure of our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The story was told a long time ago of a great art collector. His collection contained dozens of paintings, each of which was worth a small fortune. This great art collector was uh, had one son who was going to inherit the entire collection, his only heir. But sadly and tragically, the son died young as a soldier in the Great War. Years and years later, the great collector also died. And without anyone to inherit all of his art, it all went up for auction. Imagine a room filled with rich, eager people talking excitedly over what masterpiece they were willing to outbid everyone else in order to own. But at the back of the room, by himself, sat a rather sad and unimpressive-looking gardener, the family's gardener. The gardener didn't know much about art, but he knew that he loved the family dearly with all of his heart. As the excitement in the room builds, the auctioneer takes the stage and summons the first painting. It's covered with a cloth. He says, we're going to start the bidding with this piece. And he nods. And the cloth comes off. The painting's revealed. And as the painting is revealed, some people laugh. Some scoff. Some look confused. Some angry. Before them is what looks like a child's first attempt at a self-portrait. Boo, what is this? Someone shouts. The auctioneer calmly answers, 
This is a self-portrait in watercolor of the late collector's one and only son. His will clearly states that this painting must be sold first at auction. Do I hear any bids? He didn't hear any bids, but there are more boos from the crowd with some people saying, away with it. This is an art. But the gardener, standing at the back of the room, who loved the father and loved the son, he hadn't planned on getting anything, but he reaches into his pockets and pulls out all that he has and says, $1.75. Holding up the contents of his pocket, honestly wishing he had more, $1.75. $1.75, do I hear more? Oh, let him have it and be done with it, someone else shouts. $1.75, going once, going twice, sold, says the auctioneer. Please, sir, would you come forward and collect? The gardener can feel the disdain in the room as he walks forward to get the painting. He doesn't belong there, and no one feels like this painting belongs there either. As he lays down on the table all that he has and receives the painting of the sun, the auctioneer surprisingly announces, and that, ladies and gentlemen, concludes today's auction. Thank you for coming. What? There's shouts of protest and disbelief. What about all the masterpieces? What about the Rembrandts? What about the Van Goghs? What about the masterpieces? The auctioneer holds up one hand, quiets the storm of shouts, and with the other, he holds up the will of the collector. I have here the man's will. It's a legal document, must be followed, and it says, sell first the portrait of my beloved son, the most prized possession in all my collection, and... Whoever buys the son, that person shall inherit all. You can just imagine the shock that fills the room. Both shock at the unexpected loss, but also at the surprising gain this one man had. All for acquiring and valuing the right object. As we look at 1 Peter chapter 2 today, we encounter two very different value judgments being made about the same object. Like the portrait of the son, which some valued as worthless, but someone else turned out his pockets, giving everything he had, wishing he had more to give. Jesus is valued very differently by different people. What accounts for that difference? Why is Jesus of supreme value to some and of no value to others? Why is he everything to you but of no account to your neighbor? Or perhaps your neighbor is even hostile toward Christ and his claims. Peter here tells us why. Peter explains to people in the first century and to us today, why this is. Why people attach vastly different values to Jesus. Why is there such a radical difference in the value people place on Jesus? Peter says it comes down, unsurprisingly, to the heart and what the heart believes. Look again at chapter 2, 
verse 7 and 8. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this has become the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The first thing I want you to see here is this. If you're taking notes, here's the first thing. Value comes by faith. We see that in verses 7 and 8. Value comes by faith. Some habits are hard to break. And after six and a half years of living in Europe, I still get most of my news from France 24 and the BBC. And if you're following European news like, like me, then you know that this past week, the British pound took a real beating. Uh, it's at the lowest point it has been in a long, long time. We moved to England in, in 2014. And I remember going to the, the money exchange and, and turning in my dollars and the man saying, let me half that for you. Literally, I was getting half back for what I gave. It was almost two to one when we arrived in 2014. Uh, but today, the pound is worth about a dollar and eight cents. Vastly different. It's been crashing of late. Why? Why? It's because value comes by faith. Value comes by faith. And with the new prime minister, Liz Truss, with her mini budget and economic plan, people are losing faith in the British economy and therefore losing faith in the pound. Better investments are believed to be elsewhere, elsewhere in Europe, elsewhere in the world. Why? Because value comes by faith. Perhaps an even better illustration of this is cryptocurrency. What is crypto? I don't know. Uh, it's, it's nothing tangible, is it? You can't lock it up in a bank vault like cash. You can't make jewelry out of it like you can with gold, silver. But cryptocurrencies have value. Why? Because people believe they do. And people believe they can get rich quick just by backing and believing in the right one first before other people do, before other people start backing it and believing in it. But when people lose faith, what happens? It all comes crashing down. Faith, value comes by faith. You watch for concert tickets to go on sale and happily plop down your money to get them. Why? Because you believe the value of that experience will be far greater than the expense. You plan and save and pay for that family vacation to Disney World. Why? Because you believe the memories will be worth the money. You believe the fun will be worth the cost. Rightly or wrongly, you believe it. Rightly or wrongly, you have put a value on it. Value comes by faith. The same is true when it comes to Jesus. What makes the difference between a heart that values Jesus as the most precious thing in the world and a heart that is indifferent to him? Or even a heart that hates him 
The thing that makes all the difference in the world is what the heart believes. Verse 7. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. Believe. If your heart truly believes that Jesus is the Son of God, sent for you, the one who died for you at the cross, who defeated death for you at the empty tomb, who offers you life with God in a world without end. If you truly believe that, then your heart will value Jesus accordingly. He will be precious to you. Verse 7, this precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the same Jesus is a stone that was rejected, but has become the very cornerstone. If you don't really believe, you don't really believe in the forgiveness of sin, in the defeat of death through Jesus, if you don't really believe, you should expect your heart to feel indifferent and to place little value on Jesus. Or even, if you're religious, to have your sense of self-righteousness offended by Jesus. What? Jesus is saying that I'm not really a good person? That I need him? I need his death in order to be made right with God? And there's no other way to God but through him? My heart finds all that rather offensive. Many religious people today would respond that way to Jesus. They respond the very same way the religious people in Jesus' day responded to Jesus. The very people that Peter describes here, verse 7, that the people who are the builders who rejected this stone that became the very cornerstone. For him, for them, Jesus became a stone of stumbling and rock of offense. Here's the second thing I want you to see this morning. Unbelief rejects what's most valuable. Unbelief rejects what's most valuable. We see that here in verse 8. Verse 7, end of verse 7 and verse 8. What does unbelief look like, according to Peter? Peter says it looks like rejecting the cornerstone. The very cornerstone you were meant to build your life upon, you say no. I will not have it. The stone which the builders rejected, that's the very cornerstone. Peter, if, you, if your Bible is like mine and it has some words in all caps, they're not being shouted at you. They're being quoted. The, all these words are direct quotations from the Old Testament. Peter's quoting the Old Testament here because he wants us to know that God foretold long ago that the religious leaders in Jesus' day would reject him. The religious elite, the builders, would hear the message of salvation exclusively through Jesus and say, no thanks. No, they would reject it as wrong, as dangerous. They refused to restructure their lives around Christ as the cornerstone. And most religious people today still reject Jesus as the cornerstone of their lives. Jesus may be part 
of their religious system. But if you remove all the religious trappings to see what the foundation of their lives is really built upon, the cornerstone will not be Jesus. The cornerstone is still their own performance, their own religious performance. That they are banking on the fact that they are good enough. They are religious enough to meet God's approval. That they can make God's cut by being better than most. And and you see it because it it comes out as self-righteous, as holier than thou. I'm better than you because I keep the rules and you don't. I keep the religious standards and you don't. For these religious people, if Jesus is anywhere on their radar... He's more like the picture decorating the wall than the rock holding up the house. He's more like the insurance policy to cover their occasional failures than like the foundation upon which they build all their hope. And I wonder this morning if you can relate to that. Which is Jesus for you? Is Jesus something you add onto your life, like an insurance policy? Or is he the cornerstone upon which all your hope in this life and the next is built? Faith in your own performance translates into a lack of faith in his performance. Unbelief here misses out on what is most valuable. Unbelief misses out on Jesus as all your goodness. On Jesus as all your righteousness before the Father. Like the gardener in the story. Everything else can be yours, but only because you first receive the Son. It's got to be him. If Jesus is not the precious cornerstone of your life, he will be this for you instead. Verse 8, he will be a stone of stumbling and rock of offense. Here's a third thing I want you to see. Unbelief inverts Christ's value. Unbelief inverts Christ's value. This past week, The kids were doing math in the morning as I was going out the door to work. And the question comes to me as I have my hand on the doorknob, Dad, what's zero minus negative eight? We all love that, don't we? As we're we're going out the door to field algebra questions out of the blue, first thing in the morning. What is zero minus eight? Sorry, 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 sorry. I said it wrong. What is zero minus negative eight? That's better. What's zero minus negative eight? You know the answer? What is it? Ian? Yes, it is eight. The answer is eight. Why? Because when it's zero minus a negative number, the two negatives come together to make a positive. The value inverts. Peter says here in verse eight that unbelief inverts Christ's value. Unbelief inverts what kind of rock Jesus is. Jesus will either be 
a stone of salvation, or inverted, he will be a stone of stumbling. He will either be, we will either stand upon him like a rock of salvation, or we will stumble over him, being offended by what, who Christ is and what he has done. I've already highlighted some of that offense, but if you're here this morning just exploring what it might mean for you to become a Christian, what is Christianity all about, what does Christ say, uh, you've heard some of the offense already, but let me give you some more of the offense in Jesus' own words. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I also give for the life of the world is my flesh. Matthew 5, verse 20, Jesus says, For I say unto you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, unless you're better than the best people you know, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. John 8, verse 24, If you do not believe that I am who I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. John 15, verse 4, As a branch cannot bear fruit in and of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus is either the rock upon which we build all of our hope, or he's a stone that we will stumble over in indifference to or in offense at what he says. Peter again tells us what makes the difference. Verse 8. He's a stone of stumbling and rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. Here's a fourth truth for us to see. Jesus' value has both an obvious and a surprising source. Jesus' value has both an obvious and a surprising source. Peter gives us the obvious answer to why people stumble, but he also gives us a deeper, more surprising answer here in verse 8. The obvious answer for why people stumble over Jesus is because they don't believe what Jesus said. That's what Peter means when he says they are disobedient to the word, verse 8. They don't believe the message about Jesus. Disobedient, in verse 8, virtually means the same thing as disbelief. If my heart hasn't believed a message, I'm certainly not going to obey it. If I don't believe a cryptocurrency has value, I'm not going to buy it. If I don't believe a chair will hold my weight, I'm not going to sit in it. People don't value Jesus because they don't really believe what he says. That's the obvious answer to why people stumble over Jesus. They refuse to believe his message. They willfully reject his claims over them 
as their savior, king. Essentially saying, no, I'll have it my own way. I'll function as my own savior. I'll function as my own sovereign. That's the obvious reason. But there is a deeper, surprising reason at work as well. Verse 8, they stumble over Jesus because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. Now, if you really want to wrestle with this other reason, uh, if you really want to wrestle with Peter's deeper, surprising reason for unbelief, the Apostle Paul wrote, wrote whole chapters about this and why most of the Jews in his day didn't believe in Jesus. You can read it all, Romans 9 through 11. Uh, we don't have time to take that journey this morning, but it's there for you whenever you want to take it. But for now, just know this. God does not step off his throne when it comes to human destinies. God does not abdicate his throne, even here. He remains, as always, in control, in complete control. And we see that emphasized for us again in verse 9. Look at verse 9. How does verse 9 start? But you are a chosen race. You're a chosen people. Here is a fifth and final heading, if you're taking notes. Identity gives value. Identity gives value. We see that in verses 9 and 10. Identity gives value. Most everyone recognizes this. Identity gives value. People pull to the center of their identity what they value. I'm a husband. I'm a mother. I'm a writer. I'm an activist. I'm a business owner. I'm a sports enthusiast. Just read someone's Twitter profile, and you'll probably catch a glimpse of what bits of their identity they most value. But whatever identity we might carve out for ourselves, it pales in comparison to the new identity God offers to us. Here is that identity. Here's an identity that conveys real value. Look at verse 9. Who are we? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You might not realize it, but even in verse 9, Peter is still quoting the Old Testament. By doing so, Peter is saying this. All these special designations given to Israel in the Old Testament are now true for you. For you. You, church, are a chosen people. You, church, are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. A new identity has come upon you, one that conveys a greater value than you ever expected to have. For some of us, we have no trouble believing that God chose the Israelites out of all the peoples of the world to be his, but we struggle to believe that the very same thing 
could be true of us. We struggle to believe the very same thing about ourselves. Why would God choose me? My unbelieving neighbor is so much nicer (laughs) than I am, so much richer in talent and abilities. I'm the least in my family. Why me? Have you ever struggled with questions like that? If so, don't worry. God probably means for you to struggle with questions like that. I think it's, it's probably a good thing. When Israel was struggling and asking those questions, do you remember how Moses responded? Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. He's, Moses said, The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than all the peoples. For you are the fewest of all the peoples, but because the Lord loved you, he chose you. Why did God choose us? Why are we a chosen race, chosen people? It's not because we're such hot stuff. It's not because we're so great. Probably quite the opposite. God chose to save us. Why? Because he set his heart on us and gave us a new identity. Because he wanted to call out from all the world a people for himself. Because he wanted to establish a royal priesthood from among the least qualified people on earth. That's us. I've shared this illustration with our college students before, I think. And I've had to update it a little bit here. But I'll I'll ask the question again. Do you know what you have in common with Kate Middleton? Do you know who Kate Middleton is? Everybody knows, right? Uh, There was a time in Kate's life when, just like you, if she walked up to Buckingham Palace and said to the guard, I want to see the queen, the guard would have snorted back, not likely, Right? Who do you think you are to get an audience with the queen? The palace doors would remain shut for her just like they would for us. But something's different for Kate now. The gates open wide for her. The guards usher her in. Why? Because her status has changed. She is now Her Royal Highness, the Princess of Wales. She married a prince a future king of England. Now, whatever Prince William inherits, Kate inherits. She has a new relationship to the throne because she's received a new position through her her royal husband, William. She's now part of the royal family. Guess what, Christian? The same is true for you. You are now part of God's family through Jesus. You are now part of the royal family of heaven. And therefore, you have direct access to the throne, to heaven's throne. That's what Peter means when he says you are a royal priesthood. Direct access to the throne. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. Verse 6, verse, verse 9 says. Here's another part of our identity, one that gives us value. Now, when you 
first hear that we're a holy nation, you probably think, that means we're to act differently, right? We're to act holy in the midst of a world that acts unholy. While that's true, we can easily make a mistake here. I don't want you to make this mistake. We can easily hear Peter say, be a holy nation. And that means go out and try harder to live differently. We can easily think that, but that's not the message. That's not what Peter's saying. Peter doesn't say, be a holy nation. He says, you are a holy nation. It's not part of your performance. It is part of your identity. You are a holy nation. Don't strive to make yourself like this, but simply live like who you already are. Jesus has made holy forever those who come to him who are unclean, who are far away from God. By placing all your hope in Jesus' death and resurrection, you are holy right now. When God sees you, he sees you clothed in the perfect righteousness of his son. You are holy already through faith in Jesus. Therefore, go out and live like who you are. You are a holy nation. Now go and live like it in the world. In your homes, in schools, in places of business, show others that you have a different hope than they do. A better hope in the way you live and work and respond. Show people that you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. You belong to another. Verse 9, you are a people for God's own possession. Much of the world around us says they, that they want the very opposite to be true of them and their identity. I want to be my own man. I don't want anyone telling me how to live. I don't want to be anyone's possession. But in the immortal words of Bob Dylan, you're going to have to serve somebody, right? You're going to have to serve somebody. Jesus said, whoever sins is a slave to sin. We think we're free, but we're really not. We're really enslaved. We're enslaved to our sinful desires and appetites. We say we're free, but we're actually in bondage. We want freedom, but true freedom only comes in serving the right master, the good master. You're going to have to serve somebody. Bob Dylan would say, and he's right. We only discover the joy and purpose for which we were made when we live our lives as God's special possession. Verse 9. This new identity comes with a new purpose. And here it is. You see it in verse 9 as well. We're people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. When asking the question, why, God? Why us? Why did you choose us? This is part of God's answer. So that you would proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God saved you for this reason, 
that you might declare his glory. God made you for this purpose, that you might enjoy his greatness. The Westminster Confession of Faith got it right. What's the first question? Chief end of man, what is it? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's exactly what Peter says here. God created and redeemed you so that you might joyfully declare forever how good God has been to you. You'll never get over this, folks. You'll never get over this, how God rescued you from the darkness you were in, from the punishment you deserved, and gave you instead a kingdom of light that you didn't deserve. We talk about joy and enjoying God here because, you know, that's what genuine praise is. Praise is the natural overflow of what we enjoy. I often quote C.S. Lewis on this. Lewis says that the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. In other words, our enjoyment in anything isn't fully expressed until it spontaneously overflows in praise for that thing. You can see what this means for your relationship with God, right? Can you see it? If your heart is slow to praise God, I'll bet you it's because there's a slowness to enjoy God. You can't praise with your lips what you aren't enjoying with your heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If your heart is hollow in its enjoyment of Jesus, your praise will feel hollow as well. But here's some great news. If we naturally praise what we enjoy, then your chief duty, according to verse 9, is to enjoy yourself in Jesus. That's the important phrase at the end. Enjoy yourself. In Jesus. Your chief work every day when you get up, your chief work is to put on this new identity. I am an enjoyer of Jesus. Your chief work every day is to respond to the truth about Jesus, about the great things God has done for you in Christ, with joy and delight. When that's your aim, praise will come naturally from your heart. You couldn't stop it. You couldn't bottle it up if you are enjoying Jesus. And if you need even more reasons to praise God, Peter gives us two more identity-shifting reasons as he closes out this section. And this is where we'll close. Verse 10, Peter says, For you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. Here is your story. Here is my story in verse 10. 
Once we were strangers. Strangers to God and to the real purpose for our lives. But we are strangers no longer. We now know what it feels like to belong. Not to something small and temporary, but to something great and lasting and eternal. We are now part of a family, the people of God. We now know and participate in the purpose for which we were made. This is our story. Once we were all orphans, struggling on our own in the darkness, but God saw us from afar and had compassion on us. He came to us and wrapped us in royal robes and put a ring upon our finger and gave us a name better than sons. We are orphans no longer. We are now part of the family. And not just any family, the royal family of an eternal kingdom. This is our story. We were once enemies. Enemies in rebellion against God, our rightful king. We were traitors, deserving the king's wrath. In rebellion, we had set the king's house on fire and foolishly barricaded ourselves inside. But in mercy and in love, the king sends his own son into the blaze, knowing it will cost him his life to save us. Now, we are enemies no longer. We have been given a new identity. We've gone from being objects of wrath to objects of mercy. We've received the royal pardon for our treason. And more than that, we've been adopted into the king's family. We will inherit everything the son will inherit. This is our story. I'll ask you, don't you have a great cause for joy? Whatever your griefs today, whatever your sorrows, don't you have great reasons to praise the one who calls you out of darkness into his wonderful light? Just like the collector's gardener, the one who has the son inherits everything, everything else. This precious value, Peter says, is for you who believe. Father, I ask that every heart in response to your word would be a believing heart. Perhaps for the first time, may someone embrace Christ this morning by faith as Savior and King, knowing to embrace the Son is to have it all. Lord, we can lose all else in this life. Lose health, lose family, lose friends, betray us. All else could fall away, but yet to have Christ, we would be rich and have the greatest good. May every heart embrace a king this morning who lays down his life for us. And in embracing him, may we know joy. In embracing him, may we know a new identity as those who are chosen, who are holy, who are not our own, but our God's precious, special possession. 
May we live like a royal priesthood in this world, bringing people to God through Christ for the praise of your glory, to declare the excellency of your name. Lord, may you work all this in our hearts right now as we respond to your word and song. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.